The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. So here you are, with absolute freedom from the things that hobbled my own generation. Here you are, looking on yourself with certain level of education as capable, much like any other young person anywhere in the world. Here you are, with the entire world wondering what would happen in this second machine age that we're entering into, in this fourth industrial revolution that we all need to adapt ourselves to. You know what? The winners are not yet determined. It could be the young people of Africa that would form the cluster of the winners of this new thing because everyone is almost starting at the same time. And so what needs to happen is for your generation to just embrace what I call a certain level of fearlessness. Many call her Madame Dew Process. A few refer to her as a voice for the voiceless. My guest today is Dr. Obiageli Ezekwesili. She was Vice President of the World Bank Africa Region with responsibilities for operations in 48 countries and a lending portfolio of about $40 billion. From 2002 to 2007, Dr. Obi worked for the federal government of Nigeria as Minister of Education and later as Minister of Solid Minerals, where she led the first ever national implementation of transparency in the oil and gas sectors. She currently serves as Senior Advisor for Africa Economic Development Policy Initiative, where she provides policy, expertise, and advisory support to African heads of government and their cabinets. Dr. Obi has been recognized by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world and by New York Times as one of the 25 women of impact. She co-founded the Bring Back Our Girls campaign following the abduction of nearly 300 girls from Chibok in Nigeria in 2014. Few people have asked me why I'm interviewing Dr. Hobi for this podcast since she's not a tech entrepreneur like many of my other guests. First, I need to say this. This podcast is not only about tech entrepreneurs. I believe innovation is not exclusive to startups. The African future will be built by an eclectic group of people who are shaping the continent through their thoughts, words, and actions. They will include artists, writers, innovators, entrepreneurs, sports people, and thought leaders. Dr. Obi for into the latter category. Secondly, for those who are familiar with her active Twitter handle, they'll notice that she has significant interest in tech entrepreneurship and has lent her voice and influence in shaping some of the startup narrative in Nigeria. This interview was recorded live in Abuja with few people in the audience, so you may hear some background noise and low quality sound in the first few minutes. I'd like to say a special thanks to Kola Aino and his team at Ventures Platform Abuja for generously hosting us for this interview. I hope you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. This episode is brought to you by JEE Client Services. Have you ever left a negotiation feeling that you have lost, overcommitted, or will be overpaying? Negotiation is a skill and it can be learned. It is one of the most important skills you ever require as a business person. That is why you need to attend this online masterclass put together by JEE Client Services in conjunction with Lauren Gold Consulting. It's three series of live webinars starting from 14th November 2017. At the end of the webinar, you will understand how 
how to gather intelligence and prepare for negotiation, how to set expectations, how to bargain across cultural borders, how to deal with deadlocks during negotiation, and a lot more. This isn't just any masterclass. It is put together by top players in the game. JEE Client Services provides business support, governance, and compliance services for SMEs, large corporates, high net worth individuals, and membership organizations. I've known them for some time, and they're super professional and excellent in what they do. If you want to get the best out of your next negotiation, you need to sign up to attend this webinar series. Go to www.jcs.ng and register. The first masterclass is free for listeners of this podcast. To register, go to www.jcs.ng. Dr. Obi, welcome to Building the Future. Thank you. So I'm going to start my question from the beginning a bit. Your dad has significant influence on you. He's a man that never take nonsense. Now, let's talk about his later years when he was working at the Nigerian Port Authority, which is a pseudo-government institution which is corrupt and loose of laxity and, and laziness. I was able to stand there as a man that doesn't take nonsense in that kind of environment. So one of my best um, stories of growing up was my dad continuously saying that the Nigerian Ports Authority has become the citadel of Nigeria's corruption. And so he would say that, and I just, you know, I would be so puzzled by it and I would talk about it with him. And so when my English teacher once asked us to make a complex statement, I got up and I said, you know, Nigeria Ports Authority has become the citadel of Nigeria's corruption. And, and my English teacher was, what did you just Where did say? You from? <laughs> and I said, my dad says that all the time, you know, but that's to your question, that what we see today didn't just start. You can imagine how young I was and I was hearing that. But he was a man who was so intolerant of bad behavior, and especially of corruption, that um, he, 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 he would physically fight it. <laughs> <laughs> it would, you know, because, you know, you had all kinds of church, you know, what do they call them? Pot rats. That's yes. what they, yeah. That was what they called them. Yes, in those days, you know. So he was so into having people behave appropriately and um, he hated dishonesty and so he did everything to counter corrupt behavior and um, if people sort of had a tendency toward uh, thinking that everybody was up for a prize then my dad would let you know that you cannot purchase me I mean you, <laughs> you there's nothing that you could ever ever have that would make my dad trade off his convictions and his belief. And so he brought us up not by speaking, but by acting. So we saw the choices that our dad made. I mean, in those days, if you worked at the Nigerian Ports Authority at a certain level, you were definitely like really loaded. <laughs> we, we weren't loaded, not one bit. But what he did was uh, give us so much in terms of values that we were loaded in the inside. And we were so loaded in the inside that whatever we lacked on the outside paled. It really didn't show. And it turns out that those of my dad's contemporaries in his work that were accumulating riches in all kinds of ways. I mean, public service pay has never been great. So it's never been a basis for becoming wealthy. 
It's never been. But we had uh, families that were wealthy on the basis of their own dad being in the same place of uh, responsibility as my dad. But guess what? At the end of the day, we seem to have turned out better. Yes, we certainly seem to have turned out better. My dad always said, I will not steal on your behalf. I can't do that. But I'm going to give you the best education. I'm going to give you the best values. And I would give you my name. And should you make the mistake of dishonoring my name, bringing disrepute to my name, even if I have died, I would come from the grave with my walking stick and I would give you the kind of knock that would take you out. You know, it was a credible threat. It wasn't, it wasn't the kind of threat. It wasn't the kind of threat you said, my daddy just talking. We, we almost feel like he's coming, he's coming. You know, so that was important. Pardon? My dad... Benjamin Ujubong, you know, Benjamin Ume Ujubong. I'm going to go on to this next question about you are a chartered accountant and you have a relatively good job working with Akintola Deloitte and you probably become a partner and or you are heading towards that or maybe you're a partner at that point. But you got involved in with Transparency International that nearly got you in trouble with the Bacha government. That you ended up on exile, which was one of the most dangerous time in the history of Nigeria, exposing yourself to fighting against the military government. While you are a mother, you have a good family, you have a good job. How much do you love Nigeria so much to risk all of that? Well, you would have to get a context to it, right? Even by the time we relocated to Lagos at the end of the Civil War in 1970, we relocated and all around me, what I saw was squalor. We'd lost everything, essentially. The war had taken everything from anyone who was from Iboland at that time. And so you relocated and um, you had to rebuild your life. To Lagos. Into Lagos. When we relocated, we relocated to my uncle, who had been a member of the Western House of Assembly in those days. Actually, my dad's first cousin. He's well known by the politicians of that era, Fred Ebubedike. Uh, and, you know, he was quite well known in Western Nigeria. And so his home that we relocated to was uh, in Ajegunle. And all around me, I saw squalor. And I saw that the suffering was much. But my uncle, my father's first cousin, was, he fell, you know, middle class within, the, because he was a land, he owned landed asset, in even in that place, right? So there were facilities available to me, even living there, that were not available to the people I saw around me. And, and so one of those kinds of facilities was the fact that I was, was able to watch television. And so in watching television, I would see other places and I would curiously say to my dad, why is that place not like these places I'm seeing on television? I was a very curious young person. And, and my dad would say it's because of poor governance. And so I, very early, I would talk about poor governance with my dad and discuss it. And I would say, why do we have poor governance? And he would say that when the people who lead countries don't lead them well, things go wrong. And then he says, look at the civil war, look at, you know, at the squalor around. These are all things that happen when countries are not being led well. So you're able to connect between governance and poverty 
Yes. Rather than just people are not doing well for themselves. That's why they're in that poverty. Very early, very early on, you know. And so the conversation with my dad now went beyond just conversation. I was, every time my dad read the newspapers, like his life depended on it. And so I formed the same habit. So we would read the papers and then we would discuss. And so this was the context. And I recall that one of the times I said to my dad, when I grow up, I'm going to do something about this poor governance, you know? And I, I was speaking like any other child would speak. And so going on to secondary school, going on to university, I was always so vocal about the issues of governance. And so by the time I was a young professional, I was writing on issues of poor governance because I could just tell that what it was doing was terrible. Now I was seeing more that countries could do well. So why should I be in a country that wasn't doing well? And your response was not to go into politics. My consciousness was very, very well formed about this matter of governance. Very early on. And so... You can then imagine how it was that by the time I was a young professional training to be a chartered accountant in Akintola Williams, Deloitte and Touche, I was already far into my passionate detest for poor governance that I was, I was already well known for not liking poor governance. And so whether it was seminars at university or seminars by the time I was in the professions, I was a regular official discussing issues of poor governance. It was not a surprise, therefore, that as part of the Africa Leadership Forum, the um, Transparency International was going to be formed, and I was one of the co-founders of Transparency International. So you can imagine going from a child saying, why is there so much poverty around me, to being told it's as a result of poor governance, to saying, I'm do something about it to then over time becoming a part of the first global body that decided to take on the same issue. You know, so sometimes when I say to people that you must reinforce your children, there I was speaking as a child. How could I have known? I, there was no way I could have known that there was something called Transparency International that would come to pass sometime. But it did come to pass because my father affirmed anything that I said growing up. So we founded Transparency International and brought global attention to the challenges of corruption because corruption is a symptom of poor governance. Poor governance is the broader concept, but corruption is a major component and symptomatic of poor governance. So that effort was an effort that upset the status quo. I remember that when Transparency International, we decided that we were going to innovate on the ranking tool that would look at uh, the measures of corruption in different countries. And there were three of us that were the youngest of the co-founders of Transparency International in Berlin. Berlin. So it was Frederick Galtung, Joanne Lambsdorff, and myself. And at one of our meetings in Uganda in those days, it was during lunch and we were discussing and Joanne Lambsdorff said, Obi, can you imagine 
a tool that would rank countries and compare the level of corruption in them. And I thought, that is fascinating. But then I stopped and I said, but no, it wouldn't have credibility. I said, because how can we measure the quantum of corruption in each of the countries for comparison, uh, for comparability? And then instantly we sort of said, oh, but wait a minute. How about if we measure the perception that people have of corruption in their societies or that other people have of corruption in other societies? Maybe using that as a proxy, we can rank. And we were so excited. We went back to the meeting of the old, you know, the co-founders of Transparency International were not, as they say, they are not your age mate. They were not our age mates at all. They were older people. These were like former presidents, ministers, you know, top officials of um, international bodies. But we just had the privilege of having been part of this. And so when we went back and we said, we should do this thing to measure this, everybody was like, these young ones aren't going to destroy this organization. What are you, just forget it. And they wanted to shut it down. That was disruption in a way. It was disruption. But the old did not like the idea because they worried that if the credibility of the organization would be maligned in any way, if we went in that direction, that would be the end of the effort of building such a coalition. But we know we persisted and made the argument that, look, it's the statistical methodology issue. Why don't we get a group of experts that can really work on this idea? But there's something to measuring this, because this would be a way to catch the attention of everyone that needs to do something to tackle corruption. And that debate raged on throughout our AGM in Uganda at that time. Eventually, we won. And the movement decided to set up a global council of statistical people, research people, economists, and all kinds of skills to work on what you today know as the Corruption Perception Index of, of, do of, well, eh? of Transparency International. That, what you just said is what takes me to the answer to your question because the first CPI, Corruption Perception Index, then measures the perception of corruption across countries and Nigeria came out as the perceived most corrupt country in that index. And when that happened, the government of that era was so angry, they called me Conspiracy International. <laughs> they recognized that you were part of that group? I was, a, I was, not, open. I was not just a co-founder of the group, I was a, a member of the board of the group. I was the was pioneer was director of the group, and I had started to put together the Nigerian chapter of the group, made up of people like uh, Justice uh, Kayode Aisho, uh, Dr. Kolade, people like uh, uh, Emeawa, the late Emeawa, even um, Pato Tommy was part of it, then uh, General Ishola Williams. So it was clearly very annoying to the government. You know, people think that, um, people say me today and they sometimes don't realize that in a military government, I was advocating against corruption. 
I was saying to the government that through the Transparency International, we will try and locate all the stolen wealth of Nigeria and would make sure that they are brought back to the people of and Nigeria. And that's a dangerous thing to that do was, at know, that time. At this time, you maybe know. people just talk about you, but yes. that time they say, try to your life. Yes, but you know, as far as I was concerned, my dad always said that if you have a conviction, you must have the courage to stand for it. And so for me, I felt like this issue was a major obstacle and we needed to do something about it. And I didn't think that, um, you know, being lily levered should be the hallmark of a person. And so I was prepared to stand for what I believed in. At the same time, we had a group called the Consent Professionals. The Consent Professionals had been a brilliant idea of people like Pat Tommy, Atedo Peter Said, Samoni, Tola Moboluri, you know, other friends like um, Maureen Babalola, and a couple of us, Aswe Igodalo and um, Igodaro. What's my other friends? Ayo Igodaro. So there were a number of us that became part of it. Over time, you know, what was the consent professionals about? It was the first time that professionals who had hitherto not concerned themselves about issues of governance came together to say, why would a well conducted election be cancelled? Why would it be annulled? That was 1993 election. Yes. Why? You know, so the consent professionals group said, no, we must stand together and demand that this election that was annulled be revalidated and the proper winner of the election installed as president. And so this body of professionals advocating for pro-democracy and saying we must restore democracy, we were also a target of the government. Over time, the high-handedness of that government, it came after us so many times. We were beaten on the streets of Lagos. You know, we were beaten. Oh, my goodness. You know, in those days, they, they had something called kill and go. That's the mobile police. The, mobile you police. Know, the police at that time was the worst you could ever imagine. And so, you know, we would do our matches and it end up with serious beating. And so, over time, people thought, oh, my God. And remember that we're talking about CEOs of organizations and, you know, in business who ordinarily don't care about matters like this, you know? So... After a while, people said, I'm not sure how far I'm going to be taking this beating, you know? So people began to just, you know, to leave. just to leave. And at some point, I had to lead the movement. I became the first woman that led the movement, you know? And we were determined because we sort of thought, wait a minute, what was it that happened in South Africa? They resisted. They resisted. They didn't just simply say, it's okay to just take apartheid. So our own was militarization, and we needed to resist. And especially because we were talking about the generation of people like me who had been awakened to that resistance culture through the apartheid by the anti-apartheid movement, which included us because we were made to contribute our Wednesday lunch money yeah. to the ANC. So that also helped that consciousness by the time we were now young and older to say, your society matters. You can't just simply ignore things that don't go well. For someone like me, it was the first time I voted. So I took it personal that my vote would count for nothing. 
and that the military head of state would just annul the election. Where do you do that? You know, so that conviction that it was something worth standing against made us to stand against it. So now at a point, the former president of Basanjo, who was also a co-founder of uh, Transparency International, was taken into prison. And then, you know, I, I, I was getting all kinds of threats, you know, they would go in abroad, coming back became... A big problem. It was at a the, big problem. At, at the airport. At the airport. And then Transparency International got worried because the threat was so much. And our campaign to say, to get President Obasanjo out of jail at that time was really tough. So Transparency International said, we don't want a situation where we also now have to start campaigning, campaigning for you. We need your voice to be out here concerning the issues in your country. Because the threats were real. There was a cancer who was killed, and there was President Basanjo in prison. Kudira Tabela was shot dead yes. in the street of Lagos. I have to tell you about the day Kudira Tabela was shot dead. When, when Kudira was shot dead, my mom went off, <laughs> literally, because I was leading some of our concerned professional members to the court to defend. To be part of, we always went to court. With, with Kudira? Yes. And she was going to court? She was day. going to court on that day. And then the then Consul General for Canada, Jerry Olson, called me and said, she had been killed. You know? And when the news was all out there, my mom, who was still grieving my father who had died, about five About or six the, years ago. You know, <laughs> she couldn't take it. She just couldn't. She went back. She said, this cannot happen to you. It was bad. It was, it was terrible. It was, you know, it was the first time ever in our country that a woman was being slaughtered on the street for something that she was standing for. It was a terrible moment in history for us as a country. A lot of the younger ones have not had the benefit of the story of the 90s. But ultimately, those stories would have to be told uh, because they are important in our understanding the democratic process and the necessary maturation of the process. So anyway, Transparency International, so I had to leave for Berlin. I, went, I left for our office in Berlin. And, um, and you had to leave your family. Yes. Which was you know, an, a difficult thing for you. How could you even not die, you know, being faced with such a predicament, you know, but the strength that came, came from my husband. My husband was just unbelievable because my husband, from the moment that we had gotten married, he and my dad were a team. He and my dad were a team. And so by the time my dad was dying, I, I don't know what kind of conversation they had, but my husband knew that without my dad, the day does not break well. You know, so I think he decided that the day will always break well because I'm going to be in the form of a dad also. And so that made a phenomenal difference. The death of my father did not break me simply because my husband, you know, was, took, his took his place in a formidable way. And so he is a man of strength. My husband is a man of immense strength. People think I'm strong. My husband is 
strong beyond anything you can imagine. So he was the one, he believed very much in that pro-democracy fight, anti-corruption fight. And he would say to my mom, calm down, nothing is ever going to happen to my wife. She is standing for what is right and the Almighty stands with her all the way. A lot of people read what you're doing now with Bring Back Our Girls and just think, oh, she used to be in government and she's just disgruntled, that's what she's doing. They didn't know that you've been at this, that the government, you've been in government, was part of a narrative of you changing things. It was part of a protest in government as well. And what you're doing now is just a continuous narrative. So I want to go into that place when you were away and you live in your family and now seeing things from a global perspective. How did that change your approach to either governance or making a change in Nigeria? It reinforced my conviction that um, societies don't simply change. Change is an evolutionary process and can be a revolutionary process. And that for change to happen, a few people must be determined that the status quo ante is not good enough and that um, there was need for there to be some form of uh, disruption of the existing order and that um, people needed to pay the price for it. And if you wanted society to just continue in the way that you've seen it, then, you know, you're not going to do anything about it. But if you are strongly disenchanted with the way things are, and remember, telling you that as a child, I was worried about the squalor around me. You know, so that meant that in my mind, there was a consciousness that we didn't have to accept the squalor and that we needed to do something about it. And as I grew and realized that the instrumentality through which you could do much more about anything was the instrumentality of government. Because my dad always said, it's because of poor governance. And then as I grew and learned more, I understood that. So being abroad simply reinforced it because I could see the difference between societies that functioned and societies that didn't function. And then I would read about things that happened in some of those societies. And I, and I was quite impressed at the fact that certain people had to pay the price and simply say, we would not accept this as the way that we should be. We've got to change things. We've got to change the way that our society works. I was always so enthralled by the story of Singapore and how it diverged from our own story and the story of the rest of Africa. Because at the Africa Leadership Forum, Liu Kuan Yu had been a good friend of uh, President Olusegun Basanjo, and so the Africa Leadership Forum often had the benefit of the wisdom of uh, uh, Prime Minister Liu Kuan Yu at that time. And Liu Kuan Yu's story showed clearly that leadership can make all the difference because he got the same education as the education that a lot of the founding fathers of nations in Africa, modern nations in Africa got, but it was something different. He had a very strong determination to prove to the colonialists 
that they could create a great nation. There was this determination. There was this resolve on his part. And that resolve meant that he was prepared to pay the price for that to happen. So I would look at modern Singapore and the strides that it was making and then compare it with other countries that it gained independence about the same time in Africa. And I thought, there's something that's wrong here. You know, so all of that reinforced my sense that for as long as there are a number of us that would say no to accepting mediocrity as our basic destiny, then we could do something to change the status quo. Talking about um, Lincoln Yu and actually the trajectory of the Southeast Asia, not, not just Singapore, but Malaysia. So I have a theory, and, I, and this is one of the questions I want to ask that is related to what many of the people here today about tech entrepreneurship. So in the 50s and 60s, the urgent question of the generation was how to beat to take away colonialism. And so anyone that is the most brilliant minds apply their mind to getting the country out of colonial power. And then in the 70s, the brilliant minds were applying their mind to getting rid of military dictatorship in Africa, which you also play a bit of part of. And now we don't have colonialism. We don't have military dictatorship. We still have corruption, which has always been with us for a long time. But I think one of the urgent questions of our time now for our own generation is to be able to leapfrog economically using technology. Because we now have access to technology. It's democratized. We know that we have the same access. We can have the same access to education in terms of thinking and liquidity of both almost similar to anyone anywhere in the world. And what would you say to that, to people here who are applying their mind to things and want to build the future, change the life of people around them? What would you think would be the best way to approach it and from everything that you've seen as well? So I normally answer this kind of a question through two tracks. The first track is the track where I say that your generation and the generation after you, or the younger generation, uh, generation next, are not encumbered. At the generation before us, the generations before us were encumbered. They were encumbered by colonialism. Our generation was encumbered by bad governance. So, you know, dictatorships, military rule, and all kinds of aberrant rules that existed on the continent. And then corruption, systemic corruption. And then the underperformance of Africa. It was an encumbrance also. My generation, all the way to the generation that secured the independence, are often people who carry one albatross or the other. So I say to your generation, you don't carry the same because there are many of the people in your generation, if you said anything about colonial rule to them, they sort of look at you like, colonial rule? Like there was a time some white people were all over here and being called masters? They can't relate to it. It's in the distant memories that don't in any way link to them. So their mind is clean of colonialism and the kind of mindset it could give a person. The subservient mindset, that feeling of being uh, less than that it could give a person. They don't have it. The dictatorship where 
you're supposed to simply say, yes, sir, except, of course, if you're a crazy or beers equestrian that refused to be intimidated by the, by even, you know, in those times, uh, we once woke up and, and they had sent military people to our schools and they had Koboko-wielding Koboko military people who were supposed to make us disciplined because school children had become totally unruly all over the country. And so they, they came with their kobokos. And one of the times I had to just walk up to the Mr. O Captain Ubimbi or so that was sent to my own school. And I said, the day you use that koboko on anybody again, you would know that some of us can use koboko on you. You know, so, so except, of course, if you were that inclined, what you did under military rule was simply shut your mouth. In fact, in those days, people would say to my mom and to my husband, and that, oh my God, can she just leave these people alone? And my husband would say, why would she leave them alone? Since you have decided not to speak, she speaks on your behalf, you know? So if you were not encumbered by all of these things, and you find yourself as the generation that is now in a democratic dispensation that is the longest we've ever had. This is the cycle of democracy that is 17 years, or is it going to be 18 by October, continuously. The other cycles of democracy that we knew before your own time now were an average of five years. Five years. Now you've got 17 years. So we're learning how institutions of accountability, of probity, of voice, of the right of citizens to know, all of that is for you. It definitely changes the equation. So what can it, we do with it? You can do so much with it that I see some of you already trying to do. So on that track one is your own Ability to know that your context is so much more clement than the context that we had. Just that sense of appreciation of how much more enabling, even though it is still difficult, okay? Relative to our context, you have a better context. Openness is an important principle for creativity. An environment of accountability is a better context for you to have your own voice and to determine your own outcomes at a certain level. So you need to appreciate this context because if you don't, then you would disdain every effort that went into giving you this context. And I see a lot of young people that are disdainful of the context that they found themselves as though it were something that nothing went into it. A lot went into it. Blood. You just talked about Ken Sarawiwa. You know, it was, I mean, why should that man have died? It was his blood is part of what gave you your today. Don't ever be disdainful of what it took to get us to a place where we actually have 18 years of democracy in our country. That's track one. Track two is that there have been different revolutions in the world, and we've had the agricultural revolution. The agricultural revolution uh, happened. Africa was not part of it. 
Then we got the Industrial Revolution. Africa was not part of it. And then recently we are, we find ourselves in the, uh, with the Information and Communication Technology Revolution. And Africa, for the first time, is part of a particular revolution in terms of how the world works. We're part of that revolution. We're part of that revolution. See what our being part of the ICT revolution did. It coincides analytically with the time of Africa's offtake into growth levels higher than the usual 3% or minus one that it used to record in GDP growth. In the so, 70s and 80s. In the 70s and 80s, and even the 90s. So as soon as Africa became a part of this ICT revolution, a lot changed. So you think the ICT so, revolution is one of the reasons why we have the Africa rising and the double is, digit? It is correlated. Not just the demographics and the young Africans coming and then more access to wealth and disposable income. It's also the integration and the productivity that it has given to the demographics that you have to look at. At the World Bank, I was very intrigued by what ICT could do for the continent. So I did assemble my team to do a special study on the transformative capabilities of information and communication technology for the African economy. And so you've got this correlation of a takeoff of economies because it creates the basis for structural change. And you know that structural transformation is more important to you than just mere growth. Structural transformation is about productivity. You go from low productivity activities to higher end productivity activities. There are certain kinds of services that are low productivity services on the continent. It's still the higher component of GDP. But as you have introduced more of ICT and access to solutions that are technology-based, we have seen the productivity of services in Africa beginning to rise, trend up. Now, that's important because what it means is if ICT has managed to generate this level of impact, on the continent economically, and we have also seen gradually democratically, as in the political systems, are learning what ICT could be. What it sure tells us is that the integration of ICT to important sectors in ways that we make ICT not marginal to those sectors, but, but integral. integral to them, would boost Africa's productivity. So let's go to examples of that. Examples of where you can use, in your words, ICT to innovate sectors. I know there's been a lot of talk about agriculture, but let's deep dive into some of those examples that you think. I I would say that there's absolutely no sector that ICT cannot change efficiencies because it's your gain in efficiencies that's your definition of higher productivity. And so if you looked at the energy systems, There's a lot that ICT can do differently for community energy solutions. 
ICT it can create a new set of solution. Whether you're talking in terms of uh, the generation of power, or you're talking about its uh, transmission and its distribution, ICT integral to it can change the access and availability as well as the management of power at the community level. Whether you're talking about the health systems, ICT can absolutely change the way that the health is managed. And you know that for productivity of a population, you need the health systems to function. You need the health systems to function in the way that you can prevent more than you need to cure. And that the cost of health can be radically reduced because you have integrated the ICT solutions into the way that health of people, of children, of women, of men, of whether they are the infectious diseases or they are the uh, contagious diseases or they are the uh, non-communicable um, diseases, whatever it is, there are solutions that ICT can give. Or you talk about education, the delivery of education today is disrupted. We're just not accepting it. When I was Minister of Education, by just, you know, the grace of God and the sheer insight that I had, because I'm curious by nature. And so I, I was already seeing that if Singapore was attracting this level of interest uh, from corporations like Intel and, uh, and uh, Cisco and uh, the rest of them, then we needed to position ourselves for this. And so I went after them. I went after Cisco. I went after Microsoft. I went after Intel. All of the CEOs became people that I knew because I was persistent that we were going to disrupt our own education and position our population in a kind of way that would be at the cusp of any new thing that was going to happen in the world of technology. Cisco and Intel and all and the rest of them were actually going to set up academies in this country as part of our education reform. Now, what all of these point to about these errors in the revolution of the way that the world has functioned and grown economically says to us is that your generation can completely ignore the obstacles that even countries like India and China had to contend with for their own economic, rapid economic So mean we, we can leapfrog you can better than... Phenomenally do that. Because think of it, beyond ICT today, we're not talking deeper one. We're talking deeper things of the robotics and the internet of things and the blockchain technologies and we're talking about simulation science and we're talking about big data. We're talking about uh, the artificial intelligence. I mean, just think of the world, the complete sea change that this world that we're getting into brings. So here you are with absolute freedom from the things that hobbled my own generation. Here you are looking on yourself with certain level of education as capable, much like any other young person anywhere in the world. And here you are with the entire world wondering what would happen 
in this second machine age that we're entering into, in this fourth industrial revolution that we all need to adapt ourselves to, you know what? The winners are not yet determined. It could be the young people of Africa that would form the cluster of the winners of this new thing because everyone is almost starting at the same time. And so what needs to happen is for your generation to just embrace this, what I call a certain level of fearlessness. There is a fearlessness that you must have that would make you question everything that is around you because you believe that you can do incredible things. That fearlessness must be part of you. I find you people too fearful. You're fearful of somebody not liking you. You want to be liked. You know, you like that thing where somebody presses like. You sometimes amaze me at your sense of, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the things that are on the surface. There's some shallowness. And yet you can be deep because your generation can be deep. But then I see some... I'm looking for the right lexicon that to describe what, I, what I'm trying to say. But it is that part of you that is so, there's some vanity. You know, you can't do great things and be a person of vanity. Who cares what brand of handbag you're carrying? I care what's inside the handbag, not, you know, the brand of the handbag. You know, so this generation of Africans can actually say Africa can claim the 21st century. This is about solving the problems of the world. The world right now does not care what the color of the person who is solving the problem that is killing everybody is. Just tell us you can solve the problem. Leadership is up for grab. Global leadership is up for grab. And our children on the continent having been given some level of education, must take full responsibility for this new thing that we're getting into because on your back, you must carry the rest that are currently excluded from the kind of opportunities you've gotten. If any of you has been able to get as much as a university education, you should quit thinking about yourself. This is not time to think about yourself. This is time to think of yourself as someone who must be the leader of thousands, the leader of hundreds, the leader of millions. Because you're saying, if I can disrupt something positively, I would take with me so many more people. Imagine, I was so sad yesterday. Somebody, I had talked about Nehemiah and the Nehemiah leadership qualities. And, and I had said to those who follow me, read the book of Nehemiah and see how this man carried a burden. And because he carried a burden, he went forward to solve a problem. And then one of the fellows, one of my followers, or my followers came and said, oh, well, you know, I've read it. I am now waiting for an opportunity to. So I, I tweeted back at him and I said, you're waiting with a myriad of problems all around us. You're waiting for what opportunity? Leadership is not a title. It's not a position. Leadership is about solving problems. There are so many problems that you all can solve simply because of the power that your own context 
in which you're developing has given you. The power of knowledge that you have. Knowledge is at its cheapest than it has ever been since the history of humanity. The kind of access to knowledge that you have should make you problem solvers of as many things as possible. Don't live this life where you're thinking about, you know, hey, what have you done for me lately? I don't need to do anything for you. The fact that your parents have been able to sacrifice and give you a certain level of education. Go ahead and do something. Do something phenomenal for as many people, for communities. Solve problems that are around you. Rise in your strength and know that you can. There's nothing holding you back. Absolutely nothing is holding you back. Let's stop and take a quick break. We'll be right back. You should mark this date on your calendar, 21st to 22nd November 2017. That's when I'm hosting the second series of High Growth Africa Summit. Last year, the High Growth Africa Summit 2016 was lit. We had over 350 entrepreneurs and investors across Nigeria, other African countries, UK and US. And we had loads of great speakers. This year, it's going to be bigger and better. It's happening in Lagos. We expect to gather more than 750 entrepreneurs and investors. This is not your average conference. The focus will be about learning how to build, scale, and fund your own business in Africa. There will be workshops, seminars, and masterclasses on practical stuff like how to validate a startup idea, how to grow your business through digital marketing, how to hire and manage a software development team, key questions investors will ask you before taking a meeting. The sessions will be taken by entrepreneurs who have been in the trenches and have battle scars to show, and investors who are currently taking big risks on African startups. To attend this conference, you need to register at highgrowthafrica.com. That is H-I-G-H-G-R-O-W-T-H-Africa.com. It's happening on the 21st to 22nd November 2017 in Lagos, Nigeria. The ticket is less than $30 for general pass and $100 for the investor pass. But the ticket price goes up as we get closer to the conference. Go to highgrowthafrica.com and register now. That is H-I-G-H-G-R-O-W-T africa.com and register now so let's talk about this there are two tracks to what you just talked about now and one of them is the macro level because we cannot exclude the father there are some things that need to be in line and in place for some of these entrepreneurs or young people that are trying to solve problems like infrastructure like a governance availability of resources so I think it may be good for you to speak into that macro level as well, where because a lot of people here want are building companies that want to or listening to this podcast are building companies that are actually solving problems, but they are handicapped sometimes with I, the I infrastructure. Hate that word handicapped. I hate the word handicapped. Nothing should ever handicap you, no matter what constraints you identify as standing in your way. You must know. In your mind, you must have a mindset that says, I will do what is necessary to overcome the constraints. Because a constraint is put there to test your determination to succeed. So at the macro level, what do we see as constraints? The policy environment, the physical environment like critical infrastructure necessary for doing the things that you do at lower cost, or even the terms of human development 
Yeah, talent. In finding the kind of knowledge that you need in order to do what you need to do. But I dare you to find out whether some of the people you envy in other countries that have gone ahead of us had perfect context in which they dared to do some of the things they did. This idea that somebody must create a perfect environment, then I'll become an entrepreneur, that's an oxymoron. An entrepreneur is not someone who had a fancy environment and then, you know, did good business. That's not entrepreneurship, okay? So that sense of ability to overcome obstacles and make something that is a solution to the need of society, that's what makes you an entrepreneur. So if the macro is to be dealt with, if solutions have to be found to the macro context, then you need to say to yourself, should we ignore our responsibility for shaping also that macro environment? Today's world that you're living in is no longer the world where business people minded their business. Business people now know that the political and policy context can affect their business. So it means that you have to be policy entrepreneurs also. So policy entrepreneurship becomes a part of what you do. What do you mean by policy, policy entrepreneurship? entrepreneurship? Is that you're going to use your knowledge of the sector that you're operating in as a basis to engage the other side, which is government, on why it needs to play certain roles. And you need to give them an incentive for playing that role. For example, the government of Nigeria must create between three to four million jobs annually, because that's about the size of young people that enter the labor market annually. Today, only 10% of them are going to be absorbed into any gainful employment because the private sector, the economy is not expanding as rapidly as this number is growing. Now, this kind of a level of gulf between the number of jobs needed and what's available means that every one of you who's got some idea that would enable us generate five jobs, you've got a strong reason to be heard. <laughs> In an environment where you understand how powerful you become because you have the capacity to create five jobs, all of you that have capacity to create five jobs will come together, count your five. If we set five jobs for every one of you in this room now, that your idea is going to create at least five jobs, there are probably about 20 of us in this room or 25, and then 25 times five would give us what? It would give us, pardon? 125 jobs. 125 jobs. Somebody might say, what is that? But think of it. It's just 25 of us creating that. Imagine if we succeeded in being able to use that as a basis to say, okay, the city of Abuja, for us to create 125 jobs, these are the kinds of policies that would be necessary. And we didn't individually just go to our rooms and complain, but we actually became a coalition of voices for the necessary policy changes that would enable us create the 125 jobs. Do you see it's a different kind of engagement? 
It's a different kind of engagement. That's the world that you're in. This is the kind of engagement that I see in other economies that I, I do. You mean engagement between the entrepreneurs between, and the government? Especially the younger generation of entrepreneurs. They're not sitting idly and... So which economies are you talking about? Is it the Asian tigers? Asia, in Asia, you see quite a lot of that. My famous country is, of course, Singapore. You know, but even in places like Vietnam... You see that, you see the young understanding, the convergence between private sector productivity and sound policy. So they are understanding it, they are building the voice of business as an important part of the collaborative partnership process with government. It's either you people get lost in your world or you engage in a way that is not Productive. So you sometimes see, you see people are not engaging analytically in the conversation on policy. Engage in it in a way that's analytical, that gives the other person the reason why they must listen. Because you're solving a problem that should be important for them. So in a way, you're actually preaching to us about your life in the sense that you're saying entrepreneurship can be a form of actively engaging in governance. Dr. Joe Abba, who recently retired from governance, said, he tweeted something recently which I find very, very interesting. He said, you can be dispassionate about politics, but you cannot afford to be dispassionate about governance. So you're saying that entrepreneurship can be a way of us changing and shaping governance as well. Look, I know clearly that not everyone is called to politics. But every citizen is called to governance. If you are in an environment of poor governance, there is only an extent to which you can go. Businesses in Nigeria that could be continentally competitive are not continentally competitive simply because of poor governance in sectors that they operate in. So for them, the issue shouldn't be, is it PDP or APC? It should simply be, I need good governance. Because with good governance, my business would be competitive. We would be more productive. That should be the kind of self-enlightened interest that should drive your engagement on issues. Forget, let the politicians do their politics. But the real issue for you is governance. Of course, people would say that it is true politics that you then shape governance. That's true. But guess what? If you focused on governance and demanded the right kind of governance, it would begin to influence the quality of your politics. But if you're spending so much of your time on the politics, you're killing yourself, dumbing down on your own prospects and possibilities. And that's just not good enough. The other thing that I wanted to say on this particular issue is that, um, you know, Africa must, through your own generation, refuse to agree with the rest of the world that simply because it's in Africa, average can be considered excellent. Average is not excellent. Average is average. Don't allow the world to clap for you because you're an African, because you managed to speak some good English. No, it's not sufficient. If they would not clap for themselves for speaking good English, you must not accept and feel like you're a champion because some Oyibo told you you spoke good English. No, no. Average is not excellent. So 
your generation, sometimes you celebrate too quickly. You celebrate too quickly. You feel, you know, someone does something and then, you know, people talk about it and they think they've arrived. No, come on, you haven't. What's ahead of you is phenomenal. You've got to keep moving. Don't even accept where you are as okay. What you've done, that's good. But that which is best is ahead. Don't settle. I see young people, they quickly settle. And then they, you know, they just throw their hands around. Like, you know, I was on CNN. Oh, yeah, right? CNN is your index of, of great performance? Please. No. There's much more that you carry. I don't want this mediocrity that has defined the way that my generation and the generation before us assess everything to be your lot. You must have what I call a persistent sense of creative dissatisfaction. It has to be your mindset. Your mindset must carry that persistently. Creative dissatisfaction. Today is not good enough. It has to be not even better because there's a place called better that you know, consigns you to mediocrity also. But best can walk toward it. Your generation must not like the way Africa is. I've got one final question for you before we go to the fire round, and that is you're involved in a way or affiliated to the tech ecosystem in Nigeria. Uh, you are the champion of many of the startups. You actually clap and encourage, and whether openly and even privately as well. What is your take about the growth of the tech startups in Nigeria in the past three or four years? I think it's been wonderful, but I am creatively dissatisfied because I believe that the capacity you all have to lead this continent, I mean, you have so much in you. Why are you scared of failing? Why are you scared of anybody laughing at you that you didn't succeed? Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Just go, go, go. Honestly, the talents that we need to even disrupt that which has disrupted is inside of all of you. I don't know why you're thinking that you need to be validated by some externals. Do you see that a lot? I see a lot of that. It's almost like if somebody from abroad says what I've done is good, that's when it's good. It doesn't have to be like that. There are some of your solutions that the rest of the world would not use, but it would be of value to, to the people in Makodi right now, would be of value to the people in Niger, would be of value to the traders in Balogu market. It would be of great value to people in rural communities. Go ahead and do it. Can you just understand that there's so much you are carrying? I don't know. I feel like there are days when I feel like screaming from the mountaintop. All you young people, do you know what you're carrying? You're carrying so much. So I look at the tech community in Nigeria and I see the strides that you're making. But now I see comparing each other with one another kind of syndrome. You know, when you do that, it's almost like, you know, rats in a race. They're rats. They can be lions. 
Because for rats to be in a race, they all have to be rats. So you mean we, we can potentially reduce our capacity to do big things by some of those? You can do both big things and you can do many. Many things. Initially small things that then grow to scale. I think that there is this complacency and sense of achievement that comes with having been recognized to have done something. Presumptive Eldorado. It's, it's so limiting. It's very limiting. I mean, think of it this way. What is tech? I think tech is solution. That's my simple definition of it. Now, if you did a diagnostics into the number of problems that we need to solve, it means that as many of you as possible can define tech solutions. There's practically no problem that we have. Practically no problem that we have that you all cannot sort of say, how do we get together and design a solution to it? And you become so prolific. Many of it will, of course, not come to maturity. But the prolific way that you're finding those solutions mean that the number that would survive would be higher than what we have now. And the impact that they would have would be really great. Your time is not the time when problems are solved in traditional mode. So there is a, a fierce sense of urgency that is still lacking, even in your generation. You know, how about if even your community, and I don't know how well of a community you are, because I see, I see something that is prevalent in my generation and the generation before us, that I also see in your generation, and it upsets me to no end. What Fear is that? Envy. Isn't that human? Fear envy. Isn't that human, more inherently human than generational? Well, you know, there's a certain level of it that becomes unhealthy for the growth and development of any society. Because what it would do is that it would stand in the way of the kind of social capital that you need in order to collaborate. For you to get collaboration, you've got to throw away this whole peer envy thing and learn how to, you know, the world that we're in is not the world. It's okay to start small, but small is no longer beautiful. So what it means is that you must have the mindset of collaboration. When you guys have that mindset of collaboration, imagine if you had a system for getting together and saying that every year we want it to be that there are at least 20 big ideas that come out of Nigeria. You set certain kinds of big ideas targets. There's nothing that says to me that you can't accomplish it. There are many of you that have been in school environment with some of these ones that get to do really big things. Like they said to my generation, they get two heads, they get two heads. I should ask you, those are your classmates that have gone on to do really big things. You know, think of it. I think you can do more. I always say to my children and then the people that I mentor that, I see myself in the form of a coach. A coach does not tell you all the sweet things you want to hear. If I came here and I, I want you to clap for me, I would say, oh, you guys have done such fantastic things, you know, after you, now sugar cane or something. You know? but, 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 you know, in doing that, I kill where you're going because you will settle. You will regale in that adulation. And yet, there is so much more that's in you that needs to be unleashed. 
So I throw it as a challenge to the tech community, particularly in Nigeria, that you are drivers of a new Nigeria, economically, socially, politically, in governance, you can just disrupt everything that is disruptable. Why accept the status quo? Why? What I know, I already know. I want to know what I don't already know. That should be your passion. You should just kick everything that needs to be kicked and just get the best going. I'm going to end with two series of fire questions. Normally, I would ask if you're a business person about your growth metrics, but I'm going to skip that. I'm just going to ask you, because I know you're a book person, which book are you reading at the moment? (laughs) So I just stood the other day and I was looking at some of the books on a shelf and and I was um, ruminating about the kind of role that different books played in my life at different times and then I started feeling bad because I said neither Chine nor Chuba nor Chidera is interested in any of these uh, hard prints you know <laughs> these books are just going to you know just be here like this until maybe somebody who cares to read hard print <laughs> gets them so but I found that I didn't want to read any of the books that I had bought recently that I hadn't started reading. I wanted to go back again and read Lee Kuan Third to First World. I just sort of said, I'm going to do a reread of this, especially in the light of the fact that he has died. And I'm looking out for Singapore and saying, are there telltale signs of the fact that this man died with a vision of a great society? There have been one or two things that have happened amongst his children. They've quarreled openly and all of that. Disagreed in a very unhealthy way, made global, global scandal and all of that. The prime minister and his siblings quarreling with him. But I see that what has happened is that in his death, many more Singaporeans are wanting to understand what it was about that man that enabled them to come from so low to the life that he gave to them. And so reading third, from third to first world is getting me to seeing how truly one individual can create a nation of people who are determined to produce the best society economically. One person. Just one person. And so for me, any of you sitting here saying, I'm one person, I dare you to go and read the book that I am going back again to read. Le Le from third to first world. It remains so relevant for us as Africans. Because Lil Kwayu always wondered why African countries were not able to overcome. With abundance of opportunities. With abundance of possibilities that our respective countries have that Singapore did not have or does not have at all. It always surprised him. He always 
talked about his disappointment in African leadership. So taking my copy of from third to first world to read again, it's making me see some nuances that I missed the first time that I read it. So that's the book I'm currently reading. That's an interesting book. Because we must, we must get out of this rut. We just have to. Which startup is getting you excited at the moment? <laughs> am I permitted to be? Am I permitted to be? <laughs> I know I'm putting you. I, I'm not putting you on the spot here. <laughs> am I permitted to be a mom? <laughs> I know. <laughs> you, you have a favorite football club, and even though a lot of people here have different ones, so I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can pick three or four or sector. Okay, let's see. Yes. Let's go for sector. Yes. So, you know, I love some of the things that I am seeing in the education sector. I love quite a lot of the things that I'm seeing in the education sector. Learning outcomes are so important. Learning outcomes. So technology started doing that. Yes. So learning outcomes in a school system, in the university system, it's the learning outcomes that you really are targeting. If you did everything, beautified the school, you know, did all kinds of things, new instructional materials, new curriculum, all kinds of things, but learning outcomes are poor, then you have not in any way disrupted education. And what is that one factor that has the most impact on learning outcomes? It's the quality of the teacher. And so I saw recently some program where I think it's a startup. They find quality teachers that they provide to families for teaching children, individualized teaching. I can mention one of them. They used to be part of court here, ProTeach. It's probably the one that I saw. I am so fascinated by it because what it means is that there are many of you who would have downtimes that you can use, you want to do some, you know, you want your halo effect, not just making money, but you want a halo effect. So you sign on to that kind of a startup and you can go teach a group of children the sciences. For example, if they decided that their main thing is STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and they were focused on making sure that would have many more children loving the sciences and mathematics. Do you know what that would mean? That some of you, they are just, they are not many. Most of the teachers left in the classrooms have not upgraded their skills. They may not even have the kind of access to cutting-edge knowledge in the sciences that you have managed to have because of the level of access and exposure that you've gotten. But because you're deployed to other things, you don't, you're not going to be in the classroom. But that kind of a startup gets like two hours of your time every two days or three days, and you're ready to devote it to teaching and raising the quality of learning outcomes in the sciences, I'm excited about it. Because then we know we're going to have many more girls that would love the sciences and mathematics. Because you can decide that it, it would do a special program that would target girls for STEM, you know? And that excites me to no end. Teacher quality, teacher availability, any startup that focuses on addressing that 
would get me so excited. Then in health, I see a number of uh, startups that are interesting. I see those startups that empower especially women to have the data, to be able to gather data on the features of their own health. That's an exciting one because there's nothing like being able to be a master of your health or a mistress of your health as, as the appropriate word would go, you know, that they were not paying things that they were not paying attention to before. They are recording. They are recording. So you can prevent a lot of the things that come on women at a time that they least expected it. So those kinds of data generating, your life in your hand, you know, with the help of God kind of um, startups in the area of health, especially that goes to health of women and health of children. They are interesting for me. There's huge opportunity in data, by the way, in Africa. Oh, especially. huge, huge. And then I also like the startups that provide financial literacy. So financial literacy startups are, are very important they, because think of it. My team at the bank once did a study that showed that by giving women equivalent financial knowledge as their male counterparts, you improved their productivity by, by as much as 60%. And then they would outperform men in similar businesses. Very, very interesting piece of data. So financial literacy thing can enhance productivity. It can enhance the quality of decisions that business people are making uh, so that they can grow from small. They can go from micro to small and then they can go from small to medium. You know, financial literacy is so important. It's so important. It's empowering. And so startups that do that are huge in my mind. Those things matter for really raising the productivity of society in general. Because the more productive our women are, the better for our society. Because the kind of workforce that is dormant because of all kinds of constraints that limit women, we can remove those barriers through solutions that empower the women. We would unleash more productivity into our existing low productivity, and it would be good for all of us. I love startups that are also trying to make certain functions of government irrelevant. For example? I put it this way. We did a study when I was at the bank. It looked at this whole doing business indicators and found that the barriers that government faced to tackle the most were often the ones that mattered to big business. And so they forgot the small businesses because countries want to attract big investment from abroad. But big investment from abroad has a certain level of jobs that it can create for you. If you remove the barriers for the small businesses, then many more people would be able to do business and be productive, they are the ones that would create the five jobs that we talked about. 75% of jobs created in the Singaporean economy are by small businesses. So if I saw a startup that just takes over managing all of those things that would have 
consumed the small business owner because they are trying to break their head through bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> I love those startups. And they create efficiency they where create none efficiency. The small business person can simply face the business of doing business, business while someone else is addressing those things that make government irrelevant in the life of that small business owner. And then final thing is uh, that we must have those tools that enable even the illiterate amongst us have a sense of connection and voice to how they are governed. And that's why I'm a great champion for the work that, um, that Shewu and his, and his crew do, and his crew do with uh, budget, as well as code, C-O-D-E. You know, they work they do in tracking spends and all of that. Because government still remains the most potent and important instrumentality through which you can achieve scale of impact in certain interventions. And if we don't get government systems to work, it's going to be a tough one. It will be a tough one. So Just accountability startups get my high five naturally any day. I love the fearlessness with which they go after the issues that they are focused on. I have a sense that you would have been doing that startup if you are in our generation, instead of doing Transparency International, if it was now that you are like in your 20s, you would have been building a startup like that. I probably would have built 20 of startups. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have, you know, because I am so impatient for us to get a better society. I think that we should stop being okay the way we feel. Because, look, I'm a pastor's wife. And maybe that's part of why it is like that for me. Because I, I remember when I was in government, you know, my colleague, the Minister of Agriculture in those days, would come and in cabinet meetings, he would try to sort of present a picture of the great impact we were having in agriculture. And I would fight him and say, no, please don't say this. I went to the market. Because even as a minister, I used to go do the shopping at the market for my family. And I would see that, yes, we were trying the right policies, but it was not immediately affecting the micro, meaning the food prices for the poor that I saw where I was buying my yam or buying my tomato or my onion. And so connecting policy to results and to outcome was always a source of great frustration frustration for me. And so I never wanted us to celebrate just the policy. I wanted us to be interested in the Outcomes. Of course, my boss in those days would laugh. You know, my colleague minister would say something like, Oh, you've got to protect me from my colleague OBS Kwesli. And my boss would say, I should protect you from OBS Kwesli. You're a man, you're asking me to protect you. You know, my boss was a very interesting boss. You know, he said, uh, Please, you know, you're not ashamed. <laughs> You know, be go ahead, speak. After all, I know that you and your husband are. Uh, Church rats, because, you know, because you're pastors and we know how you go and haggle at the market. You know, <laughs> why is he saying this? He's saying this because 
truly, my feedback was necessary for Ross to be able to know that you can be cocooned while you're doing governance and not understand what the situation looks like. Well, it was then. It still is now. Because as a pastor's wife, I still have members of congregation whose lot did not see improvement yet. So for them, you and I cannot afford to be complacent. We can't afford to say everything is okay. How can we have people who live in the capital city? You need to go just 15 minutes away from some of the most fabulous houses in the city and you will meet squalor. We shouldn't be okay. We shouldn't be fine. We should be so impatient to change this situation. We should be angry that I am definitely very angry. At the time I was Minister of Education, I was driven by data. I showed a lot of the data to the country. And the number of children out of school that should be in school at that time was yet about seven to eight million. And I said education was in crisis. Ten years after, we're now at 12 to 13 million or thereabout. Why? We should be impatient. Because I'm also an optimist, I guess impatient optimist would describe the sense that I believe that all of us should have, as, or the people that I believe we should all become. We shouldn't be comfortable with where we are because there are too many excluded from the benefits of any progress that we made at all. And that's not good for a society. We cannot afford exclusion. We must be an inclusive society. We must be a society that understands that equality of opportunity is what we need in order to enable many more to have the kind of benefit that I have had, that you have had, because we got the best education that has given us the level of knowledge. That's a wonderful place to stop. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think it's even more than I imagine it. You are such a brilliant voice for our generation and for more generations to come. So everyone, give it up for Dr. Oda. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T H E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.
This episode is brought to you by JEE Client Services. Have you ever left a negotiation feeling that you have lost, overcommitted, or will be overpaying? Negotiation is a skill and it can be learned. It is one of the most important skills you ever require as a business person. That is why you need to attend this online masterclass put together by JEE Client Services in conjunction with Laren Gold Consulting. It's three series of live webinars starting from 14th November 2017. At the end of the webinar, you will understand how to gather intelligence and prepare for negotiation, how to set expectations, how to bargain across cultural borders, how to deal with deadlocks during negotiation, and a lot more. This isn't just any masterclass. It is put together by top players in the game. JEE Client Services provides business support, governance, and compliance services for SMEs, large corporates, high net worth individuals, and membership organizations. If you want to get the best out of your next negotiation, you need to sign up to attend this webinar series, go to www.jcs.ng and register. The first masterclass is free for listeners of this podcast. To register, go to www.jcs.ng.